stuff. Um, before getting into the, me the message today, I just want to talk uh, about giving for just a minute. And um, when most people think about giving money to a church, not this church, but let's just say any church, I think most people think about it in terms of an obligation. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul refers to giving as a grace. He calls it the grace of giving. And in verse 8, he then makes a point by telling the Corinthians that he wasn't commanding them to give. Rather, he explains that, that giving is a matter of sincerity and of love. And according to Paul, giving is a heart issue. It's not a wallet issue. Say that again. Giving is a heart issue. It's not a wallet issue. And he puts forth Jesus giving of himself as the example that we are to follow. And so we're about to enter a season that is rightly or wrongly focused on giving. Uh, I think it's rightly focused in that we celebrate the, the gift that Jesus was uh, to us. Um, perhaps we, uh, at least some of us, can get a little uh, too much into the, uh, uh, the secular giving aspect of it, but you know, that's, I don't have a problem with that. I just think we, we just tend to make it a focus more than we should sometimes. So as we enter this season of giving, I would just simply ask you to consider what Paul is saying. Do you consider, do you give to the church out of a perceived obligation or because God has given you eternity and in turn you give from a heart that overflows with gratitude? Now, we provide a number of ways that you can give to the church. There are boxes uh, on either side of the sound booth that if you uh, write a check or put money in there, that's fine. We have a couple of ways you can give online, either through our website or the, uh, the Harmony Vineyard mobile app. And then we also have a text to give option. Uh, and if you need that number, I'd be happy to give that to you. So uh, just let's keep that in mind kind of as we go into this, uh, this season. So let's pray. So Lord, I, I thank you for, for your presence here. We do feel it, Lord. And I ask now that uh, you would be in the words that I'm about to share, that uh, your truth is what would shine through above all else. We magnify your name, O God, for you are worthy to be praised. And we ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I would imagine that um, for most people, I know for me at least, that if you're going to take the time to do something, you want your efforts to be productive, right? You know, that's one reason I think leaf raking is so frustrating this time of year. You know, it's kind of a two steps forward, one step back sort of a thing, you know, the evidence that you were at all productive is gone about 10 minutes after you've done it. I mean, so you've got to really get that picture of the clean yard in your mind very quickly. Um, otherwise, it's going to look just like it did <laughs> before you started. And trust me, I deal with this as much as any of you, so I can, uh, can empathize if you have a lot of leaves. Now, that aside, I think 
this desire to be more greatly productive is one of the reasons why there's such a proliferation of coaches these days. Um, you know, coaching was once more or less just sort of limited to athletic endeavors. You know, teams had coaches and, and uh, so forth. But, you know, now you can find a coach for just about anything. You know, there's life coaches and health coaches and wellness coaches and, you know, all kinds of, of different coaches, which, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. But I say that because obviously if you want to be productive at something, first of all, you have to practice. But there are usually some specific, I don't know, tips or tricks or methods that, that coaches can tell us about when, uh, so that when we practice, we're practicing doing the right thing in the right way and thus becoming uh, more productive. So I started playing on basketball teams when I was in the sixth grade and uh, continued, played uh, competitively in high school and then also at the Division I college level. And while there are many facets to the, uh, facets, facets to the game of basketball, sort of the whole point of the game is to score. And if you're not productive from a scoring standpoint, then uh, you're going to lose. Right? It doesn't matter how good your defense is. If you can't score the ball, then uh, you will not uh, going to win. And so one of the things that I learned when I was playing and through, through all this coaching was that you know, when you shoot the ball, there's more involved in it than just throwing it up at this hoop that's 10 feet off the ground. Um, it, it looks like it's pretty simple you know, if you watch other people do it, but there's actually quite a bit of technique that's involved in shooting productively. I mean, for example, the position of your hand on the ball is important, right? You want to make sure that it's, it's balanced and that it comes off of your fingertips properly. The position of your other hand is important as well because that can alter the flight of the ball. Uh, how the ball, um, well, actually how your elbow is aligned. So in other words, you want to make sure that your elbow is lined up underneath your wrist in a straight line. Other otherwise, you're going to push the ball one way or the other, and it's not going to go uh, straightly towards the hoop. And the amount of arch you put on the ball, all those things can affect your shot, right? And so that's where a coach can sort of help you understand, you know, look at what you're doing. If you're doing it wrong, can offer some tips to help you do it and thus become more productive, right? So all those things make a difference between, you know, just throwing a ball and actually shooting it with some hope that it's going to go in. Now, it's just, I just use this example because it's familiar, but it's just one simple example of how understanding and then applying the proper mechanics or methods or whatever uh, when you're doing something can help increase your productivity. Now, as odd as this is going to sound, uh, the same thing can be applied to prayer. Here we go. No. Why is my little clicker not here? All right, well, if you would advance the slide, please. Um, so this, the same concept applies to prayer, but you know, there's not a huge calling for prayer coaches, at least that I've been able to find. 
Uh, and I think it may be simply because we read about prayer, it seems so simple, why would anybody need a coach to help them do it? Right? It's kind of like shooting a basketball. Oh, great. Thank you, John. So, prayer is just talking to God, right? So, when I need something, I just heave up a prayer and hope that it lands in God's in-basket. It's kind of like just flinging a ball at a hoop. But, that, but if that is all there is to it, then why do so many of our prayer times, both individual and corporate, seem dry, lifeless, and unproductive? But there's this description of an amazing, powerful, and very productive prayer time that some believers experienced. And it's in the book of Acts. So what did they know about prayer that we have missed or that we don't know? So let's see what we can find out. So we're going to look uh, in Scripture at Acts uh, chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, 23 through 31. And rather than read a whole bunch of Scripture, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary of what's occurred up to this point. Okay, so just a little bit of background so that we have the context for, what I'm, for, the, for the actual Scripture we're going to look at. So what's happened up to this point is that Peter and John are on their way to the temple for a prayer time. And they encounter a man who is lame, who's sitting at the gate. And uh, Peter heals him. Praise God heals him, but Peter is the vehicle that he uses in that instance. And so this, the, the guy is ecstatic. He's jumping around. Everybody sees this. They all know, hey, something amazing has happened here. And that gives Peter the opportunity to preach to everybody who saw what had just happened. Right? So he's got an audience. He's, God has you know, worked this. You know, we see this kind of a formula happen over and over in Scripture. Work of power gets people's attention. They are able to preach the gospel, and many come to believe in Jesus. And that's exactly what's happened here. So Peter, now that he has this opportunity, he preaches you know, very boldly, and all, we have all these people that, uh, that come to, to know Christ. Well, the religious authorities, who are always sort of trying to sniff out this sort of thing, uh, they find out what's going on, and they're not at all happy about it, right? And so the next day, they have Peter and John and this formerly lame man all brought before them. And so they start to question them, and, and Peter is preaching boldly to them. And he's telling them about Jesus. And he's pointing out that, oh, by the way, you are the guys that killed him. That's pretty bold, I would say. Uh, and so the religious leaders, rather than you know, being really, really upset, they're more amazed than anything because they understand Peter was just, in there to kind of paraphrase, Peter was just a dumb fisherman. How in the world can he preach with this kind of power and authority? So, in the same thing, or by the same token, they don't want to believe that this man that's standing there was, was healed of being lame, except he's standing there, right with them, right? So they can't deny what they see with their very own eyes. 
So they really don't know what to do at this point. So they kind of just, they threaten John and Peter, and they say, don't do that anymore, and they send them off, okay? And it's right about here that we pick up the story, all right? So we're in Acts 4, verse 23 uh, through 31. And I'm reading out of the New Living Version, uh, and that's what's up on the screen. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings, excuse me, the kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Now, I would say, by anyone's estimation, that was a pretty productive prayer meeting, yeah? Yeah? When's the last time you prayed and the building shook? Okay, yeah, me too. Never. Um, so, what I want to talk about today is that we should be able to deduce by what we see the early church doing how it is that we can pray effectively, right? So what did they know that we don't? What was it that they were doing that we're somehow missing? And we end up with these, like I said, dry and perhaps at, at the very least somewhat ineffective prayer meetings. Well, I, I think the answer is that the early church prayed so effectively and productively because their prayers were worship-based, scripture-fed, and spirit-led wherein they praised God for who he is, they acknowledged and surrendered to God's will, they offered their requests and petitions, and then they claimed God's promise for the battle. So let's look at that. So first of all, they began by praising God for who he is. And this comes from verses 24 through uh, 26. And so this way of beginning the prayer with praise and thanks to God is what makes the prayer worship-based rather than needs-based, which always begins with requests, right? I think, you know, if you've been in church uh, for much at all and if you've ever attended any kind of prayer meetings, whether it's in a small group or a larger group, it's pretty common that the, the first thing out of someone's mouth is going to be, okay, who has any prayer requests? Right? That's kind of the way, and I'm not, saying, um, I'm not saying that to condemn anyone. That's kind of the way we've been brought up. Right? That's kind of the way everybody's been taught. Because no one's ever told us any differently. 
It's just the, what we do. But these early Christians, rather than approaching it that way, they began with the character of God. And they took their time to focus their attention first and foremost on the wonders of who God is. Right? Their prayer was also scripture-fed because at the very beginning of this prayer, they're actually praying a psalm. It's specifically Psalm 2, or from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of the nations and the coming of Christ to establish his eternal reign. And so you, it's likely that these believers sort of saw these, the Jewish leaders' opposition to Jesus and to them because there was persecution going on of you know, followers of the way uh, as fulfilling this ancient prophecy. At any rate, what's really important here and what I don't want you to miss is how different this prayer starts from most of our prayers. Right? It usually starts by focusing on ourselves or others instead of God. So I think the first part of this is they began praising God for who he is using a worship-based, scripture-fed prayer. Okay, next, they acknowledged and surrendered to the will of God. Right? So having just offered this praise to God as our sovereign Lord of all events, they responded by declaring that what God's will determines, his power carries out. Okay? What do you notice in part two? Still no requests. Right? Now, does this mean that on occasion you can't um, ask for God's help, like, you know, Lord, I need a parking space that's close to the door, or Lord, please heal this person? Uh, no, I, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. I, I think that's still a perfectly okay way to prayer. But I would also then follow that up by saying that if that's the extent of your praying, I would imagine that you're praying with very little power and not much productivity. Because as I said two weeks ago, if all we ever do is to seek God's hand, we may miss his face. But if we seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. And I think these early believers really got that. They really understood. Uh, next. Next, they offered their requests and petitions. So after having gone through these first two steps of really putting God and God's will first, now they get down to actually offering their requests. That's from verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear the threats and give us boldness in preaching your word. So when the believers prayed about you know, Jewish King Herod and the Roman ruler Pilate and the Gentiles all conspiring, uh, conspiring with Israel, it's clear that they felt like everything and everybody was kind of against them just the way they had been aligned against Jesus. But what I think is fascinating about this passage is they didn't pray for the defeat of evil forces. They didn't pray for their own safety. What did they pray for? They prayed for boldness and for the hand of God to heal and perform signs and wonders. Don't miss this. In fact, they prayed for the very things they were likely to get persecuted for. 
You see, I think these early believers had a sense of mission that went far deeper than any of us can even fathom. You know, I, I, I like to, I think a lot of things tend to sort of line up with the 90-10 rule. You know what I'm talking about? You know, where 90% kind of does this and there's 10% that does that and sometimes they reverse. And so I think that these early believers were 90% focused on who God was and what God's will and God's plan was, and maybe 10% focused on themselves. Now, how could they do that? Well, I think they were confident that if they focused on God, the rest was all going to kind of take care of itself, right? And I think the scriptures bear that out. And the sad thing is that I'm not even sure the 90-10 rule in reverse applies to the church today. I think it'd be a stretch to say that we're 10% focused on God and 90% focused on ourselves. I think it's probably more like the 199 rule. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to stay that way. It does not have to stay that way. And then finally... They claimed God's promises for the battle. And so they recognized that their own inability to overcome the temptations and the attacks, everything that goes on in, in our daily life, especially um, with this known and ongoing persecution that they were facing, they understood that, they, that on their own they couldn't deal with this. So they entrusted their welfare for the warfare to the delivering force of God through the power of his presence and the promises that he made. And so they pledged themselves to walk in obedience and victory as the fruit of their praying. And if you needed any further evidence that this prayer was spirit-led, as I said, God shook the building. He filled them all with the Holy Spirit and they actually then and there received the boldness that they had asked for. And as I said, if that's not a productive prayer meeting, I don't know that there's ever been one. And it doesn't get any better than this, short of heaven. Now, if the way that I've described that these early Christians prayed sounds vaguely familiar, it's exactly what I talked about two weeks ago. It's the same pattern that Jesus used, or Jesus taught his disciples. This idea of going upward in reverence, downward in our response, inward with our requests, and then outward with our readiness as, to, as we go forth into the world. And that's what the disciples asked. They asked Jesus to teach, or that's what Jesus taught them when his disciples asked for prayer to teach them about how to pray. It's probably easy to, to say this, but I think as bad as 2020 has been, I really do believe that 2021 is going to be an amazing year in the life of this church. You see, we believe with all our heart that God's called us to start a preschool. And we believe that God's calling us to find a new location. And we're going to talk about this more in January and other things as well. But for now, what I'm asking all of you to do 
is to really begin praying about these things, both individually and in any kind of corporate time of prayer that you may be involved in, especially if you would like to come on the second Sunday of every month. We're doing a service called Fresh Encounter. Uh, starts at 6.30, goes for about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, we get very focused in what we're praying for uh, and would love to have uh, all of you come. But the thing is that, that Jesus taught this pattern of prayer. And the early believers prayed this pattern of prayer and the whole world changed as a result of it. Think for a minute what the church could accomplish if we were to begin praying in this pattern of prayer. And so let's stop just kind of randomly throwing prayer requests up into God's in-basket and start to pray in a way that is so productive that the building shakes when we're finished. I want someday to be in a prayer meeting when that happens. And I think it can happen here as well as any place else if we'll just focus on that. So let's pray. Lord God, so many read your word and think, well, that's not going to ever happen in my day. That was just for back then. You're not going to shake any buildings anymore. That was just to make the Bible interesting. Well, I reject that thinking. And I know that if we were to really focus ourselves and to pray in such a way that glorifies and honors you, that your Holy Spirit could come and could shake this building to its foundations. And so I boldly ask you for that right now, Lord, that you would come and you would do that not just for me, but for anyone here who desires that, whether that's in a corporate time or even in their own private prayer time. Shake our buildings, God. We want to be the church that you so desire for us to become. And we understand that that only is going to happen if we get on our knees and cry out to you. By honoring you, praising you, acknowledging your will, lifting up our requests, and then finally deciding to actually walk, at, walk it out as you have, uh, have told us. So Lord, now we come before you with great thanks. Humbly acknowledging the gift that you gave us, not only in Jesus, but in this wonderful sacrament of communion that he has left with us, that we might be, have a means to really remember 
just how much he gave for us. And so we recall that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he asked his Father in heaven to bless it. Then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples who were seated around the table with him. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you. When supper was close to being over, he took a cup. Again, he asked his father to, to bless it. And this he now shared with his disciples as well. And he said, take this, all of you, and drink, for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Blood that is shed was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do so and remember me. So Lord, we ask you now that you would bless this simple meal. That you would make it to be for us your body and your blood. that you would consecrate it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The body of Jesus given for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Father, we again give you praise and thanks for this meal. That it would strengthen us, that it would encourage us, that it would remind us of the great love that you gave, that you had for us, that you freely gave to us, even though it cost you your life. And that in that sacrifice, we would also then remember to, in return, share that love with others. We give you thanks as we go into this week that contains a day that we really focus on thanks. And that as Andre prayed this morning, that we would truly be thankful in all things. Not just for a, a wonderful meal set before us, but for all things. And I ask all this now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chip, would you come? Uh, okay, that was supposed to happen. I was going to say, if every time I walk up here, something <laughs> weird happens, maybe I need to go home. Um, I want to invite Chris up. I wanna, Brandy, you have a story to share as well. I know you have a baby. He can come up when she's done. And Harry, you already shared. You've jumped the gun, but that's okay. So every week we have um, a prayer time here where we'll pray for you. Um, it's usually me and Pastor John will be at the front. Um, we're also a praying church. You ask anybody in the church to pray, you know, we will. 
but sometimes we can have so many requests that we miss the answers. We don't get to hear. So we want, I wanted to just start highlighting what God is doing and how he's moving. So Chris, if you would. Some weeks ago, uh, the middle of October, my daughter came to me and told me that one of her routine tests were, was um, not right. There was something wrong with it. And so a week later, she went in for a biopsy, and I got the text message that nobody wants to hear. Um, the biopsy showed she had cancer, and she's only 29 years old. So it was really rough. It was rough to be able to trust God through this. And I, <laughs> I have to admit, at first I was very angry. But as time went by, I really, really quickly went back and said, God, you got this because we don't. Anyway, we all prayed for, we had the whole church praying, we had the uh, worship team and the small group praying, and she went in and had a second biopsy for them to determine the level of treatment and the level involvement of how far it is spread. And they said 10 days later they would have the results. Within five days they called her back and she is cancer-free. She has no cancer. It's gone. Amen. Our God is so good. Amen? That kind of stuff gets me excited. Uh-oh, maskless. Um. <laughs> uh, so I'm not that great at telling stories. <laughs> but um, I was at work. And my coworker, I don't know, she'd been with us maybe a month or so. She was, I guess, I think her age is 55. She's been a smoker all her life. And she was talking to my coworker, who's a pharmacist. And in the midst of her talking, she said, ow, my chest hurts really bad. And so, um, I don't know, she went and sat down. And the pharmacist looked at me, and she was like, oh, my gosh, uh, Brandy, what do we do? I'm like, I'm like you're the doctor. <laughs> so uh, I just went back. She went and sat down in my boss's room, who had a separate room from the main area. And when she did, I just looked at her face, and I just knew she's having a heart attack. And so I just looked at the other pharmacist. I said, call 911. And where I work, there is a pre, pre-registration for surgery. Like, you have to go up and get your labs and stuff before you have surgery. And so I just ran across the hall, and I went to get two nurses. And then they came back. I don't know why it didn't dawn on us to give her aspirin, but it didn't. <laughs> so um, we went, and the nurses came over, and all her vitals were fine. But it was very clear that um, she was not okay. So my other coworker was behind her, and she was holding her, and she just kept crying out. And she said, God, please help me. I did not know at the time, but when I was across the hall getting the nurses, her name is Mitzi. She was having a heart attack, and... My coworker, she had asked her to pray with her, and my coworker just said she doesn't pray, she doesn't do those kinds of things. So when I came back and I just kept hearing her say, God, please help me, God, please help me, I just felt the spirit come over very strongly and fill up the room. And I don't know, I have a hard time praying out loud. So I just, um, it's like I couldn't even help it. I just started praying out loud with her and praying for God to fill the room and protect her and let her know that he's near her and that he loves her and that she's going to be okay. And it was really scary because before I started praying that, she started losing consciousness. And I thought she was going to die, or in front of all of us. And 
after I was praying with her, she snapped back out of it and came too. Um, so I really do believe God saved her life in front of everyone for everybody to see. So it's really cool to see God move in those kind of ways and you forget how, I, see, I guess if you don't see it all the time, you just forget sometimes. So anyway, it's really encouraging to see God actually go in and save somebody's life. It's nothing any of us did. We didn't do anything. <laughs> um, and she did, I did also feel a strong urge to pray for her after she left for some reason on the way to the hospital. And I just found out a couple days ago she flatlined several times on the way to the hospital. So I also believe that prayer saved her life then as well. So I just want to share that. Amen. These are life or death situations. Like this ch church is not let's come on Sunday and sing some songs and hear something. Your interaction, I'm not going to re-preach, <laughs> your interaction with people and how you bring the spirit can literally mean life or death. Literally, there's people in this room right now who are struggling with something, whether it be a demonic oppression, whether it be a sickness or illness, that prayer could set you free like that today. I would snap, but as I've told people, I can't snap. So I can't, thank you. I can't be dramatic. I don't know why I can't snap. Pray for me. But prayer can set you free from that today. It can heal you that today. So, you know, if you, if you want to leave and you want to go, that's fine. But if you need prayer... I encourage you, find one of us. We'll be standing up here. Find someone in the church. They will pray for you. And it's not because we're special, but God will move and God will work. And he will do it on your behalf and you will see miraculous things. I can promise you, you will see miraculous things because the Bible promises us that we'll see them. Father, thank you so much for today, Lord. Thank you for an amazing message, God, from Pastor Jeff. So we just learned to connect with you better, God. Lord, we ask for those days where the buildings will shake, God, because your presence is so great. Father, we believe we will see those times. We believe we are living in those times. Lord, every person here who is having a need, Lord, don't let them be too prideful to bring it to you. God, thank you for the testimonies we've heard. And Father, just thank you for working on our behalf and helping us and loving us and father if anyone is watching who doesn't know you lord i pray right now that you would just move in in a way that they can't help but know they feel jesus in the room because there's no words that are as persuasive as your presence so lord that's what we ask thank you for being a good god and a strong God. We love you, Jesus, and bless every person here and every person watching. Bring us back together safely, Lord. And Father, we just declare and decree that in our own personal lives, in the life of this church, that greater days are ahead. And we declare that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.